Um, how do we demonstrate our love for Jesus? Andre? I'm kind of both of you in this Go on. I'm new to this, so I'm really trying to seek more love. So my question is, how how do you love Jesus in the first place? Like, how do you love him initially to be able to demonstrate that you love him? How do you come to know him? How, how, do, you, how do you get to love in Christ? Yeah. Because it's just as easy, like, those said, I believe in God more than I believe in Christ. I believe yeah. In yeah. But it's just like, you have your family, you automatically develop that, either that eternal, eternal, or mm. sibling love for your family, of course. But Christ is spirit, so how do you initially develop that? love for something that is inanimate or some sort of you get what I mean. Mm. For you to then demonstrate that yes, I then love. Because that's how you believe in the mm. How do you make that first step to do the second step? Yeah. Yeah. Well that's I mean that's really helpful. And one of the most helpful things about going back through the the Gospels, the, the historical accounts of Jesus' life is we get to see he's he's not just a spirit, he's not just an inanimate object, he's he's a person who came and, and walked this earth and we can see him interacting with people. And now he says, by his spirit, we can experience a relationship with him that's actually weirdly more powerful than if he was right here in this room physically with us. That's what I'm saying, because back then, he walked with man. Yeah. But like, that's it, because now he's gone back by the right side of the Father. Yeah. So now we have the grace of the spirit of him. How do you, that's it. Because I was thinking about the question, I was like, how do I know this guy loves Jesus? But then, do I love Christ? How do I love Christ? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. We're gonna come. We're gonna. I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit. But can you hold on to that question and make sure we we talk about that at the end as well? Thanks. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I hope. I guess I hope that people see in me that I want to. That I'm like him. I love. I have a relationship with him, and that yeah. I want to spend time with him, and that what I do with my life comes from what I think about him and how I relate to him and yeah. I kind of hope that I suppose it's not just about what other people see in me but I just trying to think but um, that yeah that they just by your actions and by the, the way you spend your time and the way that you want to spend time with um, God I mean mm. Jesus um, yeah that it would be a relationship Malcolm kindly uh, helpfully reminded me that Jesus said if you really love me keep my commands mm-hmm. um, uh, and Ruth would put the sticker in the back of the car. Yeah. You put that sticker. It's because we've got a hippie car. It's not right how I put that up there because it's, it's awkward, isn't it, to say, I love Jesus. And that sticker kind of just exemplifies that. It's just, it's just weird. That's the kind of person who would do that. Yeah, just, uh, just, just like... Well, like, if I was to answer this question, yeah. I believe, I was like, say, for instance, like, you do it, it's like how you touch on what I said before, it's like how you love a parent or a sibling or a partner. For, for instance, if you love your partner, you wouldn't do something that they would be unhappy with. Just yeah. like how Christ and yeah. God has told you in the scriptures, these are the things I'm unhappy with. Yeah. Um, there's ways of going. So I'd suggest, like, there's the term like Christ, Christ like. So yeah. behaving in such a manner, I don't know if really too tough. Um, Probably, like, as, as you would said earlier, following his commandments, trying to live in the way of him, um, seeking him, I guess. I'm not too sure. Really. Yeah. No, this is helpful. This is the kind of where we're going with this. And, I mean, something that challenged me, I was going to put a different question up there. 
which was, um, when did you last tell someone who's not a Christian that you love Jesus? Like, I love Jesus, just saying that. I've told Christians that loads. I, I'm struggling to think of the last time. I'm a pastor in a church. <laughs> well, here we, we get a great example, don't we? I, I'm going to pray. This passage has hit me really hard, and I'm really nervous about this sermon because I, I feel like I'm just going to destroy an amazing passage in, in God's Word. And so I pray that God's Spirit works in spite of me, works in our hearts. And... Um, as I walked, I said to Jim, as I walked into the building, I just thought, Jesus, how are you actually going to, is there any prospects of change? Am I really going to be able to be like this great example of faith and love that we have in this passage? So why don't I pray as we, as we start? Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you, uh, that you're so awesome that you came, that you gave yourself, you came from the perfection of an eternal relationship with your Heavenly Father and you took humanity to yourself and you, you suffered and, and you lived the life that we failed to live and you died the death that we deserve to die so that we can even talk to you, so that we can even come to you. You rose again and by your Spirit we have that, that access to you but we know we fall so far short of where we should be and we pray by your spirit that looking at these words afresh and just seeing how you worked by your spirit in this woman you work in us that you shape us, that you change us in your name Amen Well, chapter 6 of of Luke ended with Jesus giving a long, long sermon called the Sermon on the Plain on on the flat place where he was standing and um, uh, he said at the end of that sermon some outrageous words, this famous sort of kid's uh, story that he used to explain it. He said, anyone who listens to my words and puts them into practice is like someone who built their house on a rock. But anyone who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like someone who built their house on sands. And so when the storm comes, it collapses. In other words, he says, your eternal destiny... And your entire value in life, your eternal destiny and your entire value in life are determined by your response to me and my words. Incredibly arrogant. Or true. And so the question is, well, how do we listen to him and put it into practice? What does faith look like? Faith isn't just a kind of leap into the dark of, oh, I like to believe. As we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, faith is something we're exercising even now. You're exercising faith in your chair that it's not going to collapse while I speak. And we, chapter 7 started with an example of great faith. And it ends with this example of great faith. The first example we saw was a, a Gentile, a foreigner, someone who wasn't part of Israel, the people of God. And yet Jesus said he had greater faith than he'd seen in anyone in the whole of Israel, among God's people. And the reason he had that great faith is because he recognized that he he deserved nothing from Jesus. He recognized he deserved nothing from Jesus. He wasn't even worthy to come up to Jesus. But he also recognized that Jesus came to give people what they don't deserve. He deserved nothing. But Jesus came to give people what they don't deserve. And now we see another example of great faith and great love. And it was shocking that that we saw great faith in a 
in a foreigner, in a Gentile, in someone outside the church, the people of God. Who Jesus drew in. Now we see another example of great faith and great love in a woman, which would have been shocking enough in itself in those days. Men were supposed to be the example. Men were the, considered the important people. But not just a, a woman. We're to draw attention to a woman in those days. But something that's even shocking today. A prostitute. Jesus wants us to be like this prostitute. What I'm going to do is just go back through this story that this historical account it actually happened and I'm going to retell it as we just go through verse by verse. Um, if at any point you are really struck by something or something confuses you or you just think, I, we need to push that one further, um, say something. If I think I'm going to cover it, I'll, I'll just say, but, but feel free to interrupt me. Um, one of the things we believe in in this church is as we study the Bible, although I've had the privilege of spending weeks studying it for your benefit, that doesn't make me magical in any way. And, and we're all learning from God's Word and we speak the truth, capital T, truth into each other's lives. If you think that in response to God's Word, there's a way we can apply that in our lives, please just, just say, wave, don't, don't feel ashamed. Well, verse 36, inside your sheets, you'll see there's no sermon points this week. I'm just going to start with verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Well, here's a man named Simon, but because he's so highly respected in the village, everyone knows him just as the Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees weren't so much like the bishops of today, walking around in fancy religious clothing in purple and funny hats. They were quite down to earth. They were just very serious about God's word. But don't think that this guy, this Pharisee, was a distant prude. No, not him. He's a very nice man. He's a generous and hospitable man. And he seems to be great at smoothing over conflict. You see, he's heard of Jesus, this great teacher and miracle worker. And some of his Pharisee friends are saying, uh, sorry, some people are saying around that he's a prophet. But some of his Pharisee friends are raising concerns. And so he invites them in and Jesus to his house to try and show perhaps that he can bring together both sides of the argument. He's a lovely man. He, he, he wants to create some good dialogue here. Now he's got a big house uh, with a beautiful shaded courtyard where a low table was, was set up just above the floor level with delicious Palestinian food on it for the invited guests. And, and it was the custom of that day. If you had a, a big house, a beautiful house with, with a lovely courtyard, shaded courtyard like this, that you wouldn't just invite those guests who'd sit around the table and enjoy the meal, but you'd also, if you were a generous pillar of the community like this Pharisee, you'd allow the villagers to gather around as well and, and listen in on the conversations, especially if they're as significant as this conversation. And, and Jesus arrives and, and the Pharisee greets him with polite words. But he... 
he's tactful. He doesn't want to show his allegiance either way. And so there's none of the, the customary foot washing or kisses or the refreshing oil to, to keep his hair out of his face. It's best not to be demonstrative towards Jesus because that would be awkward with given the other guests. He's just really sensible, this guy. And, and the Pharisees' friends just love the way that he's not too in your face about his religion. He, he, he's, never, he's neither stuffy on the one hand, nor is he the kind of happy-clappy, hands-in-the-air type. He's just a good, uncompromising, conservative evangelical. No wonder he's known as the Pharisee. Such a positive thing in those days. And, and they sit down for dinner. Well, actually, they, they kind of lie down. They, they recline, as we're told. And, and their feet are facing outward. That's really important. So their heads are in towards the table, and so they can take lovely food from the table. But their feet are facing outward, because feet were not only physically dirty, and I mean, they really were dirty in the dusty streets. Your sandals would get full of dirt. But they were socially dirty. They were disrespectful. So you point your feet outward. I mean, only a foreign slave would be considered low enough to wash someone's feet. So they point their feet away from each other. And the, the conversation's going really well. Nothing too controversial, nothing too embarrassing, until verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That phrase, who lived a sinful life, could be just translated, or who was the sinner. She walks in. And everyone knows who she is. She's the opposite of the one known respectfully as the Pharisee. She's known as the sinner. She's a prostitute. And everyone knows she'd do anything with anyone. She's a slut. And, and look what she's carrying. She's carrying an alabaster jar. That's a kind of soft marble, beautifully carved. Maybe one of her clients gave it to her as a fee. Although if it's got perfume in it, then she'd have to have bonked pretty much the whole of Capernaum to earn enough for that jar. It's probably worth more than her house. More likely it's a family heirloom, something you'd maybe only open for your wedding day. Well, as long as she, as long as she stays around the edge of the courtyard like the other, other villagers, that's okay. But no. She comes in close, close to Jesus. Verse 38. She stands behind him and starts to cry. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. 
She starts to cry quietly at first and then a drop lands on Jesus' feet and she looks almost embarrassed but she kneels down and the tears turn into floods. Just imagine it, enough to wet his feet. How much do you have to cry to wet someone's feet? And she's washing his feet with her tears. Deep sobs of sorrow and love. And and then in a culture where the hair was tied back with a headscarf over it, it was designed to be revealed only to a to a husband or say a parent, a close loved one, she shamelessly lets down her hair before Jesus and she uses it like a, like a flannel to clean his feet. There's silence round the table and, and the courtyard and then the silence begins to be broken with the gasps as she starts to kiss his feet. How much can this woman love him it's not sexual but in terms of the public shamelessness of it it might as well be she's a prostitute after all but then the gasps stop again and pure amazement takes over as as she does the most extravagant thing that probably anyone there has ever seen. She breaks the seal on the alabaster jar and she pours the most precious, beautiful perfume over Jesus' feet. And the fragrance fills the courtyard. No one dares to break the silence. It's the most beautiful moment of shameless worship. This woman really, really loves Jesus. But you know, Jesus ought not to have accepted that kind of devotion. Surely he was embarrassed by it, ashamed even. At least that's what the Pharisee was thinking, verse 39. When the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. In his head, he decided that Jesus wasn't that special after all. Surely everyone here had by now, except this stupid, vulnerable woman. But of course, the Pharisee was far too tactful to actually say that out loud. Although the next thing Jesus said made him wonder if he had. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. And instead of calling him the Pharisee, It's as if at this moment Jesus strips away the title, the respectability, the facade, with one simple word. His name. Simon. I have something to tell you. It's just Simon now. He can't hide. Jesus knows his thoughts. Jesus knows his heart. Simon's heart 
And as Jesus tells him this story, he, he knows my heart as well. He knows your heart too. And so we say with Simon, verse 40, tell me, teacher. Sorry. Go on. Is Simon, is Simon aware of, like, okay, I'm aware that he's aware of Christ, but is he aware of the magnitude of Christ? Like, because, because I, like, I look at stuff like this, mm. and he, because look at Simon's response, he says, tell me, teacher. Yeah. As, as the states of Pharisee, that's kind of the airport pinnacle, right? Yeah. So, if he is unaware of who Christ is, because obviously even in his mind, he's mm. like, wow, this guy's allowing this to happen. I, I obviously don't think of it the same way as I assumed, as I previously did. Mm. But then he then says, tell me, teacher. Yeah. Which means that he still pays that homage or respect to him, meaning that he, he knows him in a more divine way, if, if, if you see what I'm coming from. Yeah, I think he's not there yet. In well, fact, so, so later on, we don't know where he ends up. So is the teacher like No, no, no. Teacher's just a respectful term. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's happy to, to accept he's a teacher, but we know from what he's thinking in his head, he's now thinking he can't be a prophet because he'd know what kind of woman this is touching him. So Simon's still trying to work it out. Okay. Um, it may be he's got a sense of trust in, in Jesus. We see in a moment that Jesus says two people are forgiven their debts. So maybe Simon's in that category. Um, I think it's left deliberately vague so that whether we're not a Christian trusting Christ, whether we're not a follower of Christ, or whether we are, we can see ourselves in Simon. Okay. Thank you. That's a really helpful question. Thank you. So as, as Jesus then tells this little parable, it, it's not actually that hard, is it, to work out who's who, especially given the way that Jesus then applies the story to when he then pushes it. So verse 41 Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. None of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Two people. Well, there are two people that Jesus is talking about. There's this woman, and there's Simon easy to see that and the money lender well who could that be who do we think the money lender is yeah God but I think more specifically Christ yeah it's God but that evening it, it can only be Jesus because he's the one she loves she's the debtor who owes the big amount he's the one she loves it's subtle And Jesus was much more blatant about it, as we saw at the end of chapter 6. Your whole destiny depends on your response to me. But this is a claim to be God. There's a moneylender, which would be God. But Jesus is saying, she's got the right response to me. That means, I'm God, he's saying. Now, the amount they owe, well, in today's money, one owes him £50,000. The other, £5,000. But do you notice verse 42? I think this is perhaps the most important part of the passage. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. The debt was insurmountable. It was impossibly high. It was crippling for both of them. 
And of course the debt isn't money. The debt is sin. And so do you see what Jesus is saying about both of them? He's saying that both of them deserved to go to hell for their sin. Hell's a difficult world in a word, especially in our culture. Um, but the word Jesus uses for hell elsewhere, um, and he's the most loving man who ever lived, and he used the word hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible. He used the term Gehenna, which was the name of the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem where everything was, was thrown that was unwanted, and it was permanently on fire, and it was permanently rotting. And he says it's where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And he's saying, if you don't obey me, if you don't trust in me, then you'll end up in the rubbish dump of history. Both of these people deserve that fate. But the problem is that Simon is playing the comparison game. Simon's looking at the woman and he's thinking, she's got more debt, more sin than me. Which is true. Jesus affirms that. He's thinking, she's a prostitute. I'm a kind, religious man. Therefore, I'm better off. False. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And then comes the first snippet of of good news. God is a God of grace. Jesus came not to condemn. Jesus came not to just tell people they're off to the rubbish dump. He came to rescue them from the rubbish dump of hell. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Jesus came to forgive. Maybe Simon is a forgiven sinner. But then comes the big question. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. But then, and this is where I want to focus, and if you're looking at the time, we're going to go over. But then Jesus does something immensely gracious for Simon. I used to think that this next bit was to make Simon squirm and to vindicate the woman. It it does do that a bit. That's partly true. Oh, look at that. Here we are. There's a question that needed to be asked. Where's your plug? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go on, go on. The honesty of asking questions is helpful to, the, to those who aren't honest enough. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, coming back to the, to does the brush have a name or is she just the sin? Sorry, I just wanted to type it. No, 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 that's helpful. I dwelt on this a little bit. I thought, why doesn't she get given a name? No. Because we're told that we're the Lord knows each of us by name. And I think it's because of this purpose that, that his name was the, the Pharisee. And Jesus uncovers the mask. Whereas she's known as the sinner. She doesn't need a mask. She's open about her sin. Okay, alright, fair enough. Okay, well, referring to yeah. the sinner. Yeah. Um, 
is she, is she like going back to the same question I asked before, mm. like is Simon aware of Jesus' divine status? And yeah. I said no. Is she aware of Jesus' divine status? Yeah, we're going to see that a little bit more. But yeah, I think, I think she must be because he uses the term, she has been forgiven much. I know you just like, um, throwing back from before, from her actions. Mm. Now, it's like, it's like the question I asked earlier, so how do you love Christ? Yeah. Now, evidently in this situation, Christ is tangible. Yeah. And there what not, and she yeah. see what not. Yeah. But how did she just love this man, like, out of nowhere? I wonder, how did she just come and then automatically be overwhelmed with emotions to cry so much, mm-hmm. as you said, to even be able to wash his feet, yeah. to unveil her head, to yeah. wipe down her yeah. like, What gave her that? What, what did she feel? What was she compelled with that? What gave her the kick to be able to feel like, I love this man so much? Like, did Jesus have like, a certain presence with her, or did she know of his works so before, or was yeah. she aware of his divine states that yeah. is the Son of God? We, we know enough that she, she would have known him before. She's deliberately gone to this house with an alabaster jar in order to pour it on Jesus' feet. So she, she knows him enough to know that he forgives sinners. And, and what we've already seen in Luke's Gospel is that um, there's a time when Jesus approaches a tax collector, which were the absolute scum of society, um, because they were ripping people off. They were, they were, no, 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 but they were totally different. They were to- traitors, enemies of the state, they were, they, were, they were fighting for the occupying forces and then they were creaming off money for their own wealth off the poorest in society. They were like the loan shark who's banging on the door of an old lady to kind of nick her money. They're, they're those kind of people. The people that everyone was allowed to hate. The kind of paedophile of the day. And Jesus goes to Levi, the tax collector, and he says, come follow me. And then Levi throws a party for Jesus and invites all his sinner friends the kind of low-life scum that he would have hung out with the prostitutes and so on. And maybe she was there. And she realised that Jesus, she deserved nothing from Jesus and she assumed she was off to Gehenna. She assumed she was off to hell. And that God wouldn't want anything to do with her. And Jesus said, I'm not, I've not come for, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to restored relationship with me. And she, she clearly accepted that. So you can say it's a, a pre-assumed judgment that she's aware of Christ before this particular Yeah, she's not just aware of... She's aware that he's God and that he can forgive sins. But the Pharisees are higher up. So then yeah. that kind of plays like a kind of little power to us. Then, yeah. Because it's like the Pharisee who's at the top of his pinnacle or yeah. and so forth and so forth is unaware of Christ's divinity. Yeah. But the sinner yeah. who's come from whatever is aware before even he is yeah. and in the reference that he does he even shows that cool despite you claiming to be holy or whatnot yeah. your, your sin weighs the same yeah yeah so, this is yeah this is exactly the point i mean you've just said it better than i can that that jesus is turning things on their head the one who's supposed to know everything about god actually doesn't even really know him and the one who's supposed to be an outcast and rejected by society is drawn in. So she's so close to Jesus, she's treating him like her husband. Because, you know, I understand that. No, it's, it's really helpful. Again, no, no, it's so helpful. And, and that's kind of where I haven't focused. And I want to focus in on Simon. So you've just kind of done a whole load of the work that I wanted to do for me. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very grateful to you. Um, yeah, that just sets up this next bit so helpfully. Because this woman gets the grace of Jesus. She knows who he is. She understands it. 
And, and I, as I said, I thought this next bit was to make Simon squirm and to kind of vindicate that woman, to say, yeah, she's, she's got it, and he's just an idiot. But actually, I think that this is something that Jesus does for Simon's benefit. What Jesus is about to do, which is really hard for Simon to hear, is the kindest thing he could possibly do for Simon. To help Simon to have the opportunity to experience the love of Jesus in the way that this woman does. She gets she's a sinner. She gets she needs forgiveness. She gets she's been rescued from the pit of hell for a relationship with the king. She gets it. Simon doesn't. We don't know, we're not told after the story whether he gets it or not. The question is, will you? The question is, will I? Now, before we focus on what Jesus is about, I'm giving a big builder, aren't I? But I want us to skip to the end before we come back to focus on what Jesus says to Simon. First to see Jesus claiming to do what only God can do. We've touched on this already. But verse 48, Jesus says to her, the woman, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins, as the other guests know. Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? We've seen that before when Jesus forgives the sins of the the paralyzed man. And they say, only God can forgive sins. That's right. So Jesus is claiming to be God. And he backs that up again. Verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith is in Jesus. You can only put your faith in God. Jesus is saying he has not only the authority to accept her faith, her trust, but also the authority to tell her that she's forgiven and she can go in peace with God. And Jesus is saying to her, you're trusting the right person. I have come to rescue you, and now you have peace with God through me. I also want us to consider verse 47 for a moment. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And I want to dwell here again to help us feel the weight of what Jesus said to Simon. Because I don't know about you, but if you've read this before, I've often read this as saying, kind of bad luck, Alex. Uh, You became a Christian age 15, having grown up in a very sheltered background. The longest you had a girlfriend before you got married was three weeks. And so you're a textbook good boy. You'd work really well as this Simon guy. And, and you've missed out doubly, Alex, because you didn't get to have all the fun that sinners have with the sex and the drink and, and all the stuff that goes with that. And now you don't even get to enjoy the benefits of great love towards Jesus who's forgiven you because you've not been forgiven that much. And, and so that makes me feel like I'm, I'm missing out because let's make no mistake, this... This kind of great love that this woman has is immensely pleasurable. I don't mean sexually pleasurable. But this is not an empty religious ritual. She's not going into a religious building and getting out some candles and bowing and scraping and feel like she's doing her duty. She's pouring the perfume that would have gone on the feet of the husband she'll probably never have. She loves Jesus. I mean, just think about it. Uh, unrequited love. You know, when, when someone 
loves you, but you don't love them back. I, I don't know, maybe some of us have had that experience. You know, a friend you knew at school or university or in the past or a colleague who clearly loves you and they want a relationship with you and you just don't feel the same. And that kind of love is not pleasurable. That is awkward. You're kind of waiting for them to stop being in love with you because you feel guilty that you can't, you can't give it back. You know, Jesus loves me and I don't feel love back. Well, that's awkward. But reciprocated love, love that you can, can enjoy and, and, and show in return is, is sweet and perfect. What about the idea that we might have missed out on the life of a sinner? I don't know if you've ever felt that. Just ask this woman if it's called missing out and, and she'd correct you. The pain of taking the good gifts of God and stealing them and taking them early and having them in the wrong context is, is extreme. The broken relationships, the, perhaps the wanting to feel special with each client but then discarded like a cheap sex toy. And the love turns actually to hatred towards these men who are abusing her. And she's probably never going to get married with the STDs. She, she's contaminated. She's damaged goods. And no matter about the physical damage, the, the kind of social, spiritual damage, he would never recommend that kind of life to anyone. But not getting married is not what matters to her because the source of love the one who all the best husbands in the world are only a, a kind of shadow of, a little cartoon of. The, the one that she was made to know, he loves her. And he has forgiven her. And so she blows her wedding perfume on him. But you know that way of thinking that I, I've missed out on all the fun and now I'm missing out on all the love. That way of thinking, that just shows my failure to see what I am really like. The idea that somehow I would be more in love with Jesus if I were a worse sinner should start to sound warning bells in my head. Because Jesus says that following him and obedience to him is life in all its fullness. We've got it as our, our vision statement, shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ. Because Jesus says, my, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So hearing Jesus' words and putting them into practice, doing what he says, is a beautiful life. And Psalm 16 verse 11 says this, you made known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Knowing Jesus is wonderful. I'm not missing out. Praise God for the grace of saving me as a 15 year old. But I'm clearly not getting that. And so Jesus is so gracious to Simon in starting to show him his sin. And the comparison here between Simon and the woman is designed to bring Simon to his knees. And it's designed to bring us to our knees. 
to the point where we would, as it were, wet Jesus' feet with our tears. Verse 44 on the sheets. Then Jesus turns to the woman and he said to Simon, See that? He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You, Simon, you in your logical, acceptable behaviour have done something utterly unacceptable. Your guests may think you're great. They may love the fact that you're not too in your face about your religion. But your attitude to me, Simon, is shocking. It is wrong. And it's as if Jesus came to me and to you and Jesus comes to me and he says, Alex, I came into your life. You accepted me as your Lord. I rescued you by dying for you on that cross and rising again. But you don't even seek me out in the mornings. You just get on with your life. And you go to a dinner party and someone who's not a Christian asks you about what you do and you talk as if your church is a small business, not a, not a family with me at the centre. And you never tell anyone other than a few Christians that you love me. And you say that you follow me. And yet your most valuable possessions you keep to yourself as if they're your security and not me. Jesus says, Alex, the way that you treat me is disgusting. It's as if you're ashamed of me. It's as if you're ashamed of me. In two chapters' time, Jesus says this. It's there on the screen, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. This is fullness of life. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, that's the divine title for Jesus, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You are ashamed of me. And it's because you just don't realise how much you've been forgiven. And instead you find your security in, in comparing yourself to others who are worse than you. And, and they play you on side. And you don't realise that you're just as bad if not worse than them. Look at this prostitute. She knows what shameless in worship looks like. In his grace, Jesus shows us our hearts. Have you ever been, maybe just recently, have you been particularly surprised with yourself, with the, the sin in your heart? That's not just a slip. 
That's your true self. That's what you're really like, apart from Jesus. That's just coming out and bubbling to the surface. And, and sometimes to try and deal with that, we, we go around and we talk to others. You know, we've had a conflict. Someone says, you're such a so-and-so. And, and we go and talk to friends. We say, oh, just, just reassure me, I am a good person, aren't I? Or we hide it. You know, it's secrets. And we keep it back. There's something we're ashamed of because we just don't want other people to know just how bad we are. Or, or, you know, it's a blip, isn't it? It's a blip. It's not our real self. That sin that came up, that attitude, that way of thinking, the thing that we said, the images that we looked at. That, that's not our real self. That's just a blip. And so I'm not going to tell anyone else in case they think that blip's the real me. Because it's not the real me. Yes, it is the real you. And this prostitute, she doesn't turn up to Simon's house all dressed nightly, nicely and neatly and prim and proper. The story doesn't go, she walks in and everyone's like, that woman looks familiar. She does look like that prostitute. Oh, isn't it lovely? Her, her sort of life's been reformed. She, maybe she was a good person. Maybe that was just a blip in her life. Maybe she's just good at heart. Jesus, it's so great that you help people who help themselves. You've really given her a leg up. She's shameless in worship, and part of that is she's honest about her sin. Everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows the muck, the mess. And actually, in doing that, do you see how gracious she's being to the rest of the room? Because she's playing everyone on side, but not in the way that they can think, oh, I'm better than her, she deserves to go to hell. But if she can be forgiven, then I can be forgiven. And so the sin that you're holding back, that you're not telling someone about, the muck in your heart that you think is just a blip, and that you're not really confessing to your church family, do you know what that's doing? That's making them think, I need to be as good as that person. And then maybe Jesus will accept me. The Apostle Paul said something amazing. He said, God had mercy on me, the chief of sinners, I am the worst, but for this very reason, I've been forgiven. That Christ Jesus might display his grace to those who would believe. If someone like Paul, who was a murderer, could be forgiven, then maybe you could be forgiven. If someone like this woman could be forgiven, then maybe you could be forgiven too. And if someone like Simon, someone like Alex could be forgiven then maybe you could be forgiven too I I realised it's just in the last few weeks I I had a struggle with uh, I don't think this is always necessary to share publicly but I think in the role of a pastor it is I I had a real struggle with um, Pornography in a way that I haven't since university. And um, I was trying to sort it out by just setting up all kinds of controls on, uh, on the web. And I thought, well, you know, this is just a blip. And um, if I just put in the right kind of uh, family settings on TalkTalk, Talk, then, then it won't happen again. And I thought, but well, how is it the Lord in His grace for the last 10 years has enabled me to, to not be tempted to go that way when, when all these family protection schemes weren't in place. 
bits my heart off. And so I went to a couple of friends who helped me. I told Lucy that I'm struggling. And in, in tears and pain, I took it to the Lord Jesus. And you know when you're you're feeling wretched and you know you screwed up. You just want someone to say to you, I love you and I forgive you. I love you and I forgive you. And if we go to Jesus with our sin, pretending nothing, then he says, I love you and I forgive you. And he doesn't just say it, he does it. As he lives that perfect life. Not as a religious kind of prude. Not as someone who's stuffy and stuck up. But as someone whose life is beautiful and perfect. And his relationship with his father is just precious. And he takes that and he goes to the cross. And on that cross he bears that hell, that Gehenna, that rubbish dump. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as you hear those words, you hear that Jesus has borne the penalty that you deserve. He's borne the hell that you should take. And so when he says, I love you and I forgive you, how do I know how much he loves me? Because he took hell for me on that cross. The eternal son of God faced an eternity in hell, as it were. As he took the full force of God's hatred to all that is evil and wrong in the world all that stuffy pride that judges others all that muck, all those broken relationships that we have caused and he takes it on himself and if we get it we will love him we will love him shamelessly Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. If you're trusting in Christ, you have not been forgiven little. But if you think you have, you will love little. But our model is this woman. She is shameless in worship. She's willing to bear the awkwardness of saying in public, in a very demonstrative way, I love Jesus. So that as people look on her, they think Jesus must be immensely special. And immensely kind. And immensely forgiving. Maybe I could be forgiven too. We're not told how Simon responds. He's probably speechless at that point. But Jesus in his grace has shown Simon his sin. And the bigger question that Luke leaves us with, maybe Luke even knew how Simon responded. He decided to leave that out. So that the question is hanging. How will you respond?
I'm going to pray. Um, and I don't know what to do at this point, then maybe come way over, but I'm going to let Jim decide. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your amazing love to Simon. That you would show him how unacceptable the way he treated you was. So that you might break him open and help him to see that this woman, far from being someone you should have rejected, is a model to him of how he can be accepted. Father, we pray that we would see that to ourselves. That you would show us the utter horror of the way we are embarrassed and ashamed to talk about how you love us. Please would we know how to help one another to, to foster that love, not in a way that is religious and fake, but in a way that is real and genuine. That is open about our sin, our many sins. we're not trying to prove ourselves but point to you the wonderful saviour in your precious name Amen invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I am broken at your feet Like an alabaster child 
Your feet. 